Hello and welcome back. Today we are going to be finishing up the last chapter of book one in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Moving on to chapter six. Neely came home and he and Francie were sent out for the weekend meet. This was an important ritual and called for detailed instructions by Mama. Get a five-cent soup bone off of Hassler's, but don't get the chopped meat there. Go to Werner's for that. Get round steak chopped, ten cents worth, and don't let him give it to you off the plate. Take an onion with you, too. Francie and her brother stood at the counter a long time before the butcher noticed them. What's yours? he asked finally. Francie started the negotiations. Ten cents worth of round steak. Ground? No. Lady Justin bought a quarter's worth of round steak ground. Only I ground too much. And here's the rest on the plate. Just ten cents worth. Honestly, I only just ground it. This was the pitfall Francie had been told to watch against. Don't buy it off the plate, no matter what the butcher says. No, my mother said ten cents worth of round steak. Furiously, the butcher hacked off a bit of meat and slammed it down on the paper after weighing it. He was just about to wrap it up when Francie said in a trembling voice, Oh, I forgot. My mother wants it ground. God damn it to hell! He hacked up the meat and shoved it into the chopper. Tricked again, he thought bitterly. The meat came out in fresh red spirals. He gathered it up in his hand and was just about to slam it down on the paper when... And Mama said to chop up this onion in it. Timidly, she pushed the peeled onion that she had brought from home across the counter. Neely stood by and said nothing. His function was to come along for moral support. Jesus, said the butcher explosively, but he went to work with two cleavers chopping the onion up into the meat. Francie watched, loving the drumbeat rhythm of the cleavers. Again, the butcher gathered up the meat, slammed it down on the paper, and glared at Francie. She gulped. The last order would be hardest of all. The butcher had an idea of what was coming. He stood there trembling inwardly. Francie said it all on one breath. And a piece of suet to fry it with. Son of a bitchin' bastard, whispered the butcher bitterly. He slashed off a piece of white fat, let it fall to the floor in revenge, picked it up and slammed it on the mound of meat. He wrapped it furiously, snatched the dime, and as he turned it over to the boss for ringing up, he cursed the destiny that had made him a butcher. After the chopped meat deal, they went to Hassler's for the soup bone. Hassler was a fine butcher for bones, but a bad butcher for chopped meat, because he ground it behind closed doors, and God knows what you got. Neely waited outside with the package, because if Hassler noticed you had bought meat somewhere else, he'd proudly tell you to go get your bone where you got your other meat. Francie ordered a nice bone with some meat on it for Sunday soup for five cents.
Hassler made her wait while he told the stale joke. How a man had bought two cents worth of dog meat and how Hassler had asked, should he wrap it up or do you want to eat it here? Francie smiled shyly. The pleased butcher went into the icebox and returned holding up a gleaming white bone with creamy marrow in it and shreds of red meat clinging to the ends. He made Francie admire it. After your mama cooks this, he said, tell her to take the marrow out, spread it on a piece of bread with pepper, salt, and make a nice sandwich for you. I'll tell mama, you eat it and get some meat on your bones, ha ha. After the bone was wrapped and paid for, he sliced off a thick piece of liverwurst and gave it to her. Francie was sorry that she had deceived that kind man by buying the other meat elsewhere. Too bad Mama didn't trust him about chopped meat. It was still early in the evening and the streetlights had not yet come on, but already the horseradish lady was sitting in front of Hassler's, grinding away at her pungent roots. Francie held out the cup that she had brought from home. The old mother filled it halfway up for two cents. Happy that the meat business was over, Francie bought two cents worth of green of soup greens from the green grocers. She got an emasculated carrot, a droopy leaf of celery, a soft tomato, and a fresh sprig of parsley. These would be boiled with the bone to make a rich soup with shreds of meat floating in it. Fat, homemade noodles would be added. This, with the seasoned marrow spread on bread, would make a good Sunday dinner. After a supper of fried frikadellen, potatoes, smashed pie, and coffee, Neely went down on the street to play with his friends. Although there was no signal nor agreement, the boys always gathered on the corner after supper, where they stood the whole evening, hands in pockets, shoulders hunched forward, arguing, laughing, pushing each other around, and jigging in time to whistled tunes. Maudie Donovan came around to go to confession with Francie. Maudie was an orphan who lived with two maiden aunts who worked at home. They made ladies' shrouds for a living at so much per dozen for a casket company. They made satin tufted shrouds, white ones for dead virgins, pale lavender for the young married, purple for the middle-aged, and black for the old. Maudie brought some pieces. She thought Francie might like to make something out of them. Francie pretended to be glad, but shuddered as she put the gleaming scraps away. The church was smoky with incense and guttering candles. The nuns had put fresh flowers on the altars. The Blessed Mother's altar had the nicest flowers. She was more popular than the sisters, with the sisters than either Jesus or Joseph. People were lined up outside the confessionals. The girls and fellows wanted to get it over with before they went out on their dates. The line was longest at Father O'Flynn's cubicle. He was young, kind, tolerant, and easy on the penances. When her turn came, Francie pushed aside the heavy curtain and knelt in the confessional. The old, old mystery took hold as the priest slid open the tiny door that separated him from the sinner and made the sign of the cross before the grilled window. 
He started whispering rapidly and monotonously in Latin with his eyes closed. She caught the mingled odors of incense, candle wax, flowers, and the good black cloth and shaving lotion of the priest. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Quickly were her sins confessed and quickly absolved. She came out with her head bowed over her clasped hands. She gen genuflected before the altar, then knelt at the rail. She said her penance using her mother-of-pearl rosary to keep count of the prayers. Maudie, who lived a less complicated life, had, had had fewer sins to confess and had gotten out sooner. She was sitting outside on the steps waiting when Francie came out. They walked up and down the block, arms about each other's waists, the way girlfriends did in Brooklyn. Maudie had a penny. She bought an ice cream sandwich and treated Francie to a bite. Soon, Maudie had to go in. She wasn't allowed out on the street after eight at night. The girls parted after mutual promises were asked and given to go to confession together the following Saturday. Don't forget, called Maudie, walking backwards away from Francie. I called for you this time, and it's your turn to call for me next time. I won't forget, promised Francie. There was company in the front room when Francie got home. Aunt Evie was there with her husband, Willie Flitman. Francie liked Aunt Evie. She looked a lot like Mama. She was full of fun and said things to make you laugh, like people did in a show, and she could mimic anybody in the world. Uncle Flitman had brought his guitar along. He was playing it and all were singing. Flitman was a dark, thin, dark man with smooth black hair and a silky mustache. He played the guitar pretty well considering that the middle finger of his right hand wasn't there. When he came to where he was supposed to use that finger, he'd give the guitar a thumping whack to do for the time when the note should be played. This gave a queer rhythm to his songs. He had nearly reached the end of his repertoire when Francie came in. She was just in time to hear his last selection. After the music, he went out and got a pitcher of beer. Aunt Evie treated them to a loaf of pumpernickel bread and a dime's worth of Limburger cheese, and they had sandwiches and beer. Uncle Flipman got confidential after the beer. Look on me, Kate, he said to Mama, and you look on a man that's a failure. Aunt Evie rolled her eyes up and sighed, pulling on her lower lip. My children don't respect me, he said. My wife has no use for me, and Drummer, my milk wagon horse, is gotted in for me. Do you know what he did to me just the other day? He leaned forward, and Francie saw his eyes brighten with unshed tears. I was washing him in the stable, and I was washing under his belly, and he went and wet on me. Katie and Evie looked at each other. Their eyes were dancing with hidden laughter. Katie looked suddenly at Francie. The laughter was still in her eyes, but her mouth was stern. Francie looked down on the floor and frowned, although she was laughing inside. That's what he did, and all the men in the stable laughed at me. Everyone laughs at me. He drank another glass of beer. 
Don't talk like that, Will, said his wife. Evie doesn't love me, he said to Mama. I love you, Will, Evie assured him in her soft, tender voice that was a caress in itself. You loved me when you married me, but you don't love me now, do you? He waited. Evie said nothing. You see she don't love me anymore, he said to Mama. It's time we went home, said Evie. Before they went to bed, Francie and Neely had to read a page of the Bible and a page from Shakespeare. That was a rule. Mama used to read the two pages to them each night until they were old enough to read for themselves. To save time, Neely read the Bible page and Francie read from Shakespeare. They had been at this reading for six years and were halfway through the Bible and up to Macbeth in Shakespeare's complete works. They raced through the reading and by 11, all Nolans, excepting Johnny, who was working, were in bed. On Saturday nights, Francie was allowed to sleep in the front room. She made a bed by pushing two chairs together in front of the window where she could watch people on the street. Lying there, she was aware of the nighttime noises in the house. People came in and went to their flats. Some were tired and dragged their feet. Others ran up the stairs lightly. One stumbled, cursing the torn linoleum in the hall. A baby cried half-heartedly, and a drunken man in one of the downstairs flats. Synophysized. No. The wicked life he claimed his wife had led. Synophysized? Synophysized the wicked life he claimed his wife had led. Sorry about that. At two in the morning, Francie heard Papa singing softly as he came up the stairs. Sweet Molly Malone, she drove her wheelbarrow through streets wide and narrow, crying. Mama had the door open on crying. It was a game Papa had. If they got the door opened before he finished the verse, they won. If he was able to finish it out in the hall, he won. Francie and Neely got out of bed and they all sat around the table and ate after Papa had put three dollars down on the table and given the children each a nickel, which Mama made them put in the tin can bank, explaining that they had already received money that day from the junk. Papa had brought home a paper bag full of food not used at the wedding because some of the guests hadn't come. The bride had divided the unconsumed food among the waiters. There was half of a cold broiled lobster, five stone-cold fried oysters, an inch jar of caviar, and a wedge of Roquefort cheese. The children didn't like the lobster, and the cold oysters had no taste, and the caviar seemed too salty, but they were so hungry that they ate everything on the table and digested it too during the night. They could have digested nails had they been able to chew them. After she had eaten, Francie at last faced the fact that she had broken the fast which started at midnight and was to have lasted until after mass the next morning. Now she could not receive communion. Here was a real sin to confess to the priest next week. Neely went back to bed and resumed his sound sleep. Francie went into the dark front room and sat by the window. She didn't feel like sleeping. 
Mama and Papa sat in the kitchen. They would sit there and talk until daybreak. Papa was telling about the night's work, the people he had seen, what they had looked like, and how they spoke. The Nolans just couldn't get enough of life. They lived their own lives up to the hilt, but that wasn't enough. They had to fill in on the lives of all the people they made contact with. So Johnny and Katie talked away the night, and the rise and fall of their voices was a safe and soothing sound in the dark. Now it was three in the morning, and the street was very quiet. Francie saw a girl who lived in a flat across the street come home from a dance with her feller. They stood pressed close together in her vestibule. They stood embracing without talking until the girl leaned back and unknowingly pressed the bells. Then her father came down in his long underdrawers and, with quiet but intense profanity, told the fellow what he could do and do to what he could go and do to himself. The girl ran upstairs giggling hysterically while the boyfriend walked away down the street whistling, When I Get You Alone Tonight. Mr. Timoni, who owned the pawn shop, came home in a handsome cap from his spendthrift evening, spendthrift evening in New York. He had never set foot inside his pawn shop, which he had inherited along with an efficient manager. No one knew why Mr. Timoni lived in the rooms above the shop, a man with his money. He lived the life of an aristocratic New Yorker in the squalor of Williamsburg. A plasterer who had been in his rooms reported them furnished with statues, oil paintings, and white fur rugs. Mr. Timoni was a bachelor. No one saw him all week. No one saw him leave Saturday evenings. Only Francie and the cop on the beat saw him come home. Francie watched him, feeling like a spectator in a theater box. His high silk hat was tipped over an ear. The streetlight picked up the gleam of his silver-knobbed cane as he tucked it under his arm. He swung back his white satin Inverness cape to get some money. The driver took the bill, touched the butt of the, his whip to the rim of his plug hat, and shook the horse's reins. Mr. Timoni watched him drive away as though the cab were the last link in a life that he had found good. Then he went upstairs to his fabulous apartment. He was supposed to frequent such legendary places as Weber's and the Waldorf. Francie decided to see these places someday. Someday, she would go across Williamsburg Bridge, which was only a few blocks away, and find her way uptown in New York to where these fine places were and take a good look at the outside. Then she'd be able to place Mr. Timoni more accurately. A fresh breeze blew in over Brooklyn from the sea. From far away on the north side where the Italians lived and kept chickens in their yards came the crowing of a rooster. It was answered by the distant barking of a dog and the inquiring whinny of a horse, Bob, comfortably bedded in his stable. Francie was glad for Saturday and hated to end it by going to sleep. Already, the dread of the week to come made her uneasy. She fixed the memory of this Saturday in her mind. 
It was without fault, except for the old man waiting for bread. Other nights in the week, she would have to lie on her cot and from the air shaft hear the indistinct voices of the childlike bride who lived in one of the other flats with her ape-like drunk driver, truck driver husband. The bride's voice would be soft and pleading, his rough and demanding. Then there would be a short silence. Then he would start snoring and the wife would cry piteously until nearly morning. Recalling the sobs, Francie trembled and instinctively her hands flew to cover her ears. Then she remembered it was Saturday. She was in the front room where she couldn't hear sounds from the air shaft. Yes, it was still Saturday and it was wonderful. Monday was a long time away. Peaceful Sunday would come in between when she would think long thoughts about the nasturtiums in the brown bowl and the way the horse had looked while being washed, standing in sunshine and shadow. She was growing drowsy. She listened a moment to Katie and Johnny talking in the kitchen. They were reminiscing. I was 17 when I first met you, Katie was saying, and I was working in the castle braid factory. I was 19 then, recalled Johnny, and I kept company with your best friend, Hildy O'Dare. Oh, her, sniffed Katie. The sweet-smelling, warm wind moved gently in Francie's hair. She folded her arms on the windowsill and laid her cheek on them. She could look up and see the stars high above the tenement roofs. After a while, she went to sleep. Thank you.